0: Great gifts, strange wrapping, and it's built on the concept that you and I cannot judge outcomes by circumstances. As I think back on my life, um, and I've lived quite a while now, there have been so many times in my life where I thought circumstances were ordinary, or could have been that circumstances were painful, and I interpreted the outcome based on my circumstances for that day. But God came and did something extraordinary, and. In time, I realized that even though I was dealing with painful circumstances, God was bringing his gifts. And because of that, I've got this expression that our our staff lovingly calls Markisms, but I've got this expression that means a lot to me. And I always say, I'm great at seeing God out my rearview mirror, I just don't see him so well out my windshield. What I mean by that is when I'm looking at my circumstances, I can't always tell that God is working. But then in time, I recognize, hey, God was doing something big. And as I said to you in the past, we all all say the same thing. We're trying to explain what seems to make no sense, how that some painful circumstances brought about God's gift. We say, what was a God thing? And so we're talking about that all the weeks leading up to Christmas Eve. In fact, Christmas Eve will be the last message of the series. It's called Salvation Wrapped in Cheap Cloth. Great gifts, strange wrapping. In week one, I gave you a verse from the book of James chapter one, verse 17, where the Bible says, every good gift and every perfect present, that's what we're all looking for this year. I mean, for the people we love, we want to buy the perfect presents for the person we love, for our kids, but when it gets right down to it, there's no such thing as a perfect present. A lot of times we buy what we think somebody's going to like, and it's kind of like, oh yeah, that's nice. Or, you know, what happens with time and just stuff, and stuff breaks. So in our imperfect world, there's no such thing as a perfect present unless we see what the Bible says here because the Bible says every good gift and every perfect present comes from heaven. It comes down from God. So I take that to mean that there are perfect gifts, perfect presents. Into our painful world, God comes. And he meets us where we are and he brings with him his perfect presence. I love the fact that we're having this series in the Christmas season because really when you get right down to it, that's the story of Christmas. Perfect present, very strange wrapping. The wrapping of the first Christmas was painful. There was the cold brutality of the Roman Empire. There was a very inconvenient census. The lying schemes of murderous Herod, the poverty of Mary and Joseph, no room in the inn, feeding trough or a bassinet. And yet into that, painful wrapping, God sent the ultimate perfect present. 750 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words, Isaiah 9, 6, unto us, a child is born unto us. A son is given. Yeah. God's perfect present in a painful world in strange wrapping. Well, in week three of our series today, I want to give you perhaps the most amazing example, and that is hope wrapped in despair. Now, think about that for a moment. I mean, I know you can say, well, that's just Mark's cute way of titling things. No, I want you to think about the words for a moment. Hope wrapped in despair. Can any two ideas be further apart than hope and despair? Because despair means No hope. Oh, it's the Webster's Dictionary. Webster defines despair as the utter loss of hope to lose all hope or confidence. So if despair means no hope, what would it take for a person to have hope when he's in despair? What would it take to have hope in despair? The answer is it would take a miracle because hope and despair are opposites. It would mean that somebody who didn't think he had a future suddenly had a future. Someone who felt that there was no way out discovers that there is a way forward. Well, let's do something this morning in this brief message. If you have a copy of the Bible in your lap or if you have it uh, revved up on on your iPhone, the Bible is the manual that teaches us how God operates. So if you ever wonder, why why are all these stories in the Old Testament? The Bible tells us twice that these stories are given to us as examples. They're given to us so that we will have hope, so that we'll have instruction. So if today we were asking the question, how is it possible for a person to have hope in despair? We need to go to the Bible. So suppose today we turn the pages of the Bible to find the person, the story in the Bible of the person who had the least hope and the most despair. If you're into logic, if you're into the science of logic, you know that this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. And as a preacher, I've looked at this for years, because here's the thing, if you find an extreme case, then you can back up from that extreme case and you can say, okay, well, if God worked that way in this extreme case, he can work in my situation. So in this little little journey, as we're going into the greater to, from the greater to the lesser, let's ask the question, where is the story in the Bible that we can find with someone who had no hope? No hope in this life, no hope in the next life. Because if God can bring hope into that most hopeless situation imaginable, then God can bring his perfect present in your life. And God can meet me if I feel despair today. He can meet me in that despair and bring hope. Well, if you have a Bible with you today, let's go to the book of Luke chapter 23. Luke is the third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And if you know the book of Luke, you know we're close to the end. So Luke being a gospel or a story of Jesus, if we're close to the end, what are we close to? We're close to the point where Jesus dies on the cross. And bingo, that's where we are. It's nine o'clock on an April Friday morning in Jerusalem. And Jesus only has six hours before his earthly mission is complete. He's being led out to be crucified. Verse 32 tells us something, though, that we might not expect. The Bible says two other men, both criminals, were led out with him to be executed. And to the best of your ability, I want you to try to get, your, get this picture in your mind. I want you to imagine these other two men being led out to be executed. Most of the time when we see pictures of these two thieves, we see them already hanging on the cross, but I'd like for you to do something. I would like you to perform the mental exercise of imagining watching them walking to their execution. Look into their eyes. If there ever were two men with no hope, it's these guys. I sort of see them in my mind with their eyes down toward the ground, maybe angry, maybe desperate, but dead men walking. If you ever saw death on the face of a person who is physically alive, I think you would watch it as you saw these two guys walk out carrying their crosses to the hill of Calvary. Their life is over. There's no future. Jesus is on a mission, but they're not. Can you see the pain and the emptiness? I mean, if there ever ever was a picture of despair, it's these two thieves on the way to being crucified. I don't know how they got off on the wrong track. I have a very vivid imagination, as you New Springers know. I try, to, I try to get it in my head. What was it that got these guys? I'm, I'm, I'm sure when they were born, their parents, you know, wrapped them up and they were babies and they had, took baby pictures and had a baby shower and all this kind of stuff. I mean, how does a person start out like that and get off on the wrong track? I don't know. I just know from what we understand from the text that somehow they fell into a street gang of radical terrorists. It was a gang. But most likely, though, even though they claimed that it was about political views, it wasn't about political views. It was about stealing, it was about extorting. And I'm sure they started with little petty thefts out on the streets. I mean, but in time, it became organized crime. Enough so that it got the attention of Rome. I mean, Rome was pretty. Pretty good about letting, like, the Jewish authorities handle local, local crime if it didn't get to be. But if it got really big, it got Rome's attention. And so Rome sent their best and brightest. Rome sent their best fighting force to arrest these guys. They said, we're going to arrest them and put a stop to what they're doing. And these two guys must have been especially ruthless because it seems that Rome had a hard time catching them. Did you know? that they're probably the reason why Jesus was nailed to the cross. I mean, Romans typically tied people to crosses. But if the Romans had to go to a lot of trouble to catch you, instead of tying the victim to the cross, they would nail the victim to the cross as if to say, you're not gonna get away from us now. And Rome wanted people to know when they passed the crosses and they saw people who were nailed there, Rome wanted to say, this is what we need to do if you prove difficult to us. Many of you know the story, at least in part, and I'm guessing that you're already ahead of me. And you're presuming that I'm going to want you to focus on one of these guys, and you're right. Because if there ever was a story of hope and despair, this is it. I do want to repeat something. I said earlier, if we go by what we can see with these two guys, it appears that for this thief that we're going to talk about, there's no hope for him in this world. He's already a condemned criminal. He's in the process of being executed. There's no hope for him in this world. And after the life he's lived, there's no hope for him in the life to come. But sometime while he is on the cross and sometime in that six hours between nine o'clock and three o'clock in the afternoon, this thief gets a little glimmer of hope. Now, one more time, my imagination runs wild because I want to know what was it that caused this little glimmer? What was it that caused him to look over at Jesus and in his desperation have just a little, a little light? Had you heard about Jesus? I mean, Jesus was well-known. I mean, was he there when Jesus took five loaves and two fish and fed 20,000 people? I mean, maybe he was there thinking about how he could hustle the crowd that was there that day. I don't know. Or was it watching Jesus react to the brutal treatment he was being given? Read with me, please. Luke 23 when they came to the place called the skull they nailed him jesus to the cross and the criminals were also crucified one on his right and one on his left jesus said father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing and the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice the crowd watched and the leader scoffed he saved others they said let him save himself if he's really god's messiah the soldiers mocked him too One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. I asked that last question. Did you see that glimmer of light because of the way Jesus was reacting to his treatment? Because of what I read in the next verse. But the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Like I said, this hopeless man in total despair saw in Jesus just a little ray of hope. And it was eternally, oh goodness, this is maybe the most important line of the message. It was eternally fortunate that he chased that glimmer of hope. Because many people at New Spring will see that glimmer of hope in a message, but they won't chase it. When this thief, when he recognized in Jesus, whatever, whatever, whatever he understood, I don't know how much he understood, but when he recognized that Jesus was hope, he went for it. And look at what he said. In Luke 23, 42, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Every week, pretty much at New Spring Church, I close the message with a prayer that you can pray with me if you want to invite Jesus into your life. And what is it? I almost always say, these are not magic words because I always want you to understand it's not a verbal formula that you repeat that causes you to be saved. It is what is in your heart. That prayer just gives vent to what you're feeling in your heart. The reason why I say that is because when you look at the prayers of people in the Bible who were asking to be saved, they take all different kinds of forms. What I love though about this thief who just said Lord remember me to me his prayer is the most soul eloquent just those two words remember me like I said there are all kinds of prayers people asking to be saved the publican in Luke chapter 18 just said Lord be merciful to me a sinner the Samaritan woman when Jesus told her he could give her living water that she would never thirst again she said sir give me this water in the book of Acts the Philippian jailer When he recognized his need for God, he asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Now, I always tell you that they're not perfect words. God God is looking for a yes. What he's asking us to, to do is to repent, which means to change our minds and to believe. Believe there means to put confidence in Jesus. If you've ever read that little book I wrote called My New Walk with God, I always let you know that the biblical definition of believing involves three things. First of all, believing requires a message to be believed. You can't believe if you don't have a message. Number two, mental agreement. But number three is putting confidence in that message. That's what it means to believe. And that's what God is asking. God is looking for a yes. He's looking for us to be willing to to turn. He's he's not asking us to make all the changes because God will move inside of us and begin to help us make changes. But it's just that willingness to turn from our old way of life to put our confidence in Jesus Christ. And then whatever we pray that says yes, God will hear our prayer. (laughs) One of my favorite prayers is in the Old Testament from Rahab. Rahab had been a prostitute. But she believed that God was about to do something great. And after the two spies shared with her the message of God, she just said, I accept your terms. I think that's one of my favorite salvation prayers. I mean, God tells me that even though I'm a sinner and I'm a flawed sinner and I can never save myself, that God tells me that in his love and grace and mercy, Jesus came into the world and died for me so that I could be forgiven and have a relationship with God that will never end. I have no problem looking to heaven and saying, Jesus, I accept your terms. Hmm. And then in the book of Acts, there's the Ethiopian official with Philip riding in the chariot and he said, uh, here's water, what keeps me from being baptized. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may, he said, I believe Jesus Christ is the son of God. So yeah, people have prayed all kinds of words. There's no magic formula. But I have to tell you that this thief's words, to me, as I said, these are the most soul eloquent requests for salvation. Remember me. You guys are all too young to remember this. I'm too young to remember this, but back in the depression, there was a very popular expression. It was the forgotten man. It had been written by a novelist, but Franklin Roosevelt picked up on it. And he used this term to describe the person that society had abandoned and didn't want to think about anymore. There was a a lot of talk about the forgotten man. When I see what this thief said to Jesus, remember me, it tells me clearly he knew that everybody wanted to forget about him. The world wanted to sponge out his name, erase him, cancel him, pretend that he never lived. You and I are told that we live in a tolerant society. I will tell you, this is the most intolerant society in the history of the world. God forbid that you should say the wrong thing or you can be canceled in a race. This is not a tolerant generation. I mean, it's it's like tolerance for what I do, just not tolerance for what you do, which isn't tolerance, is it? Man, this guy knew everybody wanted to forget him. I've seen where they think Calvary was. A lot of you, perhaps, if you've been to Israel, you've seen it too. You know what? It's still an ugly place. Where they think Calvary was, this little rocky knob of a hill right next to the garden where the garden tomb is. If you go into the garden tomb, it's beautiful. with flowers and greenery, and there will be groups of people singing. It's a beautiful place, but right next to it is this rocky knob of a hill that is wretched. I mean, they got tour buses down at the bottom with diesel fumes going up to it that's true that's how it is today back then it was a trash dump now think about this thief nailed to a cross in a trash dump everything about it said forget this guy society wanted to forget him his gang wanted to forget him they're not going to stand around watch him crucified they'd used him they got what they wanted out of him He, he didn't matter anymore he was a throwaway if his parents were still living, they didn't want anybody to know he was their son. They're not there. The soldiers, wow, did they want to forget him. After having to chase him for weeks, they couldn't wait to pull the nails out of his cold, dead body and never think about him again. The whole world wanted to forget him. They wanted to kill him. If he doesn't die quick enough, break his legs, pull him off the cross before sundown so that everybody can get home and have dinner, throw him on the cart and burn his body. I'm taking a little time to say these things to you because I want you to understand what he felt in his heart. Everybody wants to forget me. They want to forget I lived. Do you understand why in that little glimmer of hope he turned to the Son of God and said, please don't you forget me. Remember me. I don't know what he understood. It was just remember that I lived. Care about me. Remember me. Now, I often tell you here at New Spring that we're not into religion. I understand that there's sort of a legitimate definition of religion. But I think what you understand is I'm talking about the sort of cultural understanding of religion. Every once in a while, somebody will tell me, our religions are the same. It's a really pretty silly thing to say. Because if you look at the dynamics of religions, they're all very different. But it's true in one aspect. Because all man-made systems, which is an attempt at codifying belief about whatever deity he, she, or it is, or they. In one aspect, pretty much all religions are the same. It's the idea that if you jump through enough hoops and if you obey the system or whatever, that the deity, whatever it is, will accept you. I want you to think about if Jesus had been like religion, how he would have reacted to this guy. Or if Jesus had been like our cancel culture today, when this thief said to Jesus, remember me, if Jesus was religion or our culture, what would Jesus have said to him? You got to be kidding me. You know what you've done? Do you know all the trouble that you've caused? Do you know all the people that you've let down? If anybody deserves hell, you deserve hell. Or why should I remember you? You're the reason I have these nails in my hands and feet. Ooh, maybe we ought to slow down on this one. Because you and I are the reason he had those nails in his hands and feet. Me? Remember you? Look, man, we have nothing in common. I'm the son of God. I'm here on a divine mission. You're dying here because you deserve to die. (laughs) Are are, are me, remember you, you want a future? Man, you should have thought about that sooner. I mean, you got nothing to offer. You realize you're gonna be dead this evening. What do you have to offer? That's how religion would have answered him. And yet... We have the words of Jesus. Today, or truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. (laughs) Hope wrapped in despair. Now, I want to slow down. I know... We're two minutes in overtime. Could I have like three or four more minutes? Is that okay? I want to just pull out a couple of words here, three or three words so that we don't miss it. The first word is the one that amazes me the most. And that's the word truly. If you grew up like I did with the King James Version, it's the word verily. But if you unpack the Greek language, what it really means is you can trust me. Now, here's the thing I'm looking at. Because I'm looking at this guy, who he is and who Jesus is. And I'm expecting Jesus to say, well, you know what? I, I guess I don't have any choice here but to help you. Do you understand the heart of Jesus to say to him, you can trust me. You can trust me. You and I live in a world where we're not sure if we can trust hardly anybody. I mean, can we trust Washington? I'm not talking about George, I'm just, <laughs> can we trust Madison Avenue? I mean, we've got all these commercials that tell us that if we have their products, it's going to make us happier, sexier, feel better. I mean, we're in a world, we're not even sure we can trust people who are religious leaders. And yet Jesus looked at this thief and he said to him, you can trust me. You can trust me. It's curious because this is one of the worst guys who ever lived. The night before, Jesus had said the same thing to his disciples. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. You can trust me. I'm not sure who I'm talking to here today, watching online, watching on television. I I don't know who feels despair today. I'm not even sure what's causing you to feel despair. But I can tell you this. You can look toward heaven and hear the voice of Jesus saying, you can trust me. You can trust me. Okay, look at a couple more words here. With me, with me. Now Jesus will not rise from the grave until Sunday morning but he's not going to be in the ground he is going to be in the presence of God. So I'm sure up in heaven the, the angels and they know the plan. They understand what Jesus is doing. I mean after all they have been like with one foot out over the edge of heaven because Jesus said I can I can ask God to rescue me and he'll send 72,000 angels. But now they know Jesus is dying on the cross. He has fulfilled the mission. And so the angels are looking at their watches and they're saying, okay, he's going to be home about three o'clock. And we're watching for him to come in. There's going to be a big celebration. The orchestras in heaven are tuning up, the angels are going through their vocal exercises, getting ready to sing. I mean, it's like Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming in. We're watching for him. And then that moment comes where Jesus walks in and they say, "Whoa, something's odd. He's not by himself. He's he's got somebody with him. Do you understand that when the son of God walked into heaven that Friday afternoon at three o'clock, he had his arm around a thief who wasn't a thief anymore. (laughs) With me. And then the word today. As I said, Jesus didn't rise from the grave until Sunday morning, but he said today. Today was Friday. How many of you this Christmas season like me, you have loved ones and Christmas is a little painful because you've got a loved one who's passed on. I want you to know they're not in the ground out there. They're not in an urn somewhere. They are, if they know Jesus, with Jesus, because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, I've gotta land this plane. But let me just say this, if Jesus had hope for this guy, you don't need to be in despair today. If he could help him, he could help you. If he would help him, he will help you. You may feel forgotten. You may feel like people walk right past you and don't see you. But I want you to hear the voice of Jesus saying, you can trust me. You can trust me. I was reading yesterday, Jerry Jenkins, who was a co-author with Tim LaHaye of All the Left Behind series, Jerry read an article that caught, captured my attention. He talked about a, a middle-aged couple that were asleep in bed. It was 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and the phone rang. You know how it is when you're in the middle of the night and the phone rings. And when the man, groggy the way he was, picked up the phone receiver, it was the voice of his college-aged daughter, who was crying so hard that she could barely choke out the words. But he did finally make out the words, Daddy, I'm pregnant. And the dad said that he was blown away by that and rocked really hard. But he, he said to her, Baby, you're not by yourself. We're going to get along. We're, gonna, we're all going to work through this. We're going to be fine. Your mom and I love you. We don't think anything less of you. We're going to work through this together. It's gonna be fine. And because his daughter was crying so hard, he he just said, um, your mom and I are gonna get with you in the next day. And after the man hung up the phone, he talked to his wife and they both decided that the best way to do this was to each write a letter that just shared their heart about how much they loved their daughter, how everything was gonna be fine. They wrote the letters, they sent them to their daughter Three days later, they get a phone call from their daughter who was very surprised. And she said, Dad, I got these letters from you and Mom. I'm not pregnant. The person had gotten the wrong number. <laughs> Whenever you dial up your Heavenly Father... Tell them you're in trouble and that you're in despair. It's never the wrong number. Just a few more seconds. Would you bow your head with me, please? If today in your heart you need to know that you have a relationship with God that it's not religion. You can say, Mark, I'm secular. I'm not even religious. But if you need to know that you have a relationship with the God who made you, you can have that relationship through what Jesus Christ did for you. The Bible said that his blood that he shed on the cross was a payment for everything we've done wrong so that he could offer us eternal life, forgiveness, and a new beginning. And it's a gift and as we saw time and time again in the sermon today, God's looking for it. Yes, there's not magic words, but if you would like, I will lead you in a prayer. And again, it's not the words, it's what you mean in your heart. And if you decide you want to say these to God, he will hear your prayer. And you will walk out of here a different person than when you walked in. Here's the prayer. Dear God, I am a sinner. I'm broken beyond repair. But I believe that you love me very much. I do believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe that he arose from the grave. I don't understand everything but I trust you. I ask you to forgive me and to make me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. Real, real quickly, please stay with me for the next few seconds. If you just prayed with me, whether you're watching online or watching on television, I have a gift for you. There's a new spring Bible in here and a book I wrote called My New Walk with God. If you're watching online, text PRAYED, or on television, text the word PRAYED to 97000 Follow the steps and we'll mail this to you. But if you're on our campus today, you don't have to wait. Just text PRAY to 97000, go to any info center and say, I pray with Mark and they'll give this to you and you can take it home today. Thank you for being here. God bless. We'll see you next weekend. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services.